is a little bit more difficult to answer. I think if you were to ask, not just uh, not just a, a follower of Jesus, not just a Christian, why is the cross special? Um, but I would even say, particularly in a society that was formed so much by Christianity like the United Kingdom, um, I would even say those outside the church, if you were to ask them, why is, according to Christian claims and theology, why is the cross important? Why is the cross special? I think, uh, I think you could probably get some answers to that. Uh, maybe not as developed and robust as we heard from Andy last time he was preaching. Uh, but I think by and large, most, certainly most Christians, but I even think those outside of the church would be able to answer the question, why do Christians say the cross is special? But then if you were to say, and, and maybe this would be just a good exercise right now from the beginning, if I were to say to you, well, why is the resurrection special? Why is the resurrection important? Um, I think I'd get a lot of blank stares there, not just outside the church, but inside the church. Um, and, and what you need to know is that that actually, when you look at the New Testament, the early church and church history, uh, that's actually kind of a newer trend. We are a very cross-centric church, as we should be. We should never make apologies for being a cross-centric church. Uh, there has been a recovery of the cross and atonement and whatnot. But you need to know that the early church and the New Testament um, certainly was a cross-centered faith. But equally, if not more so, a resurrection-centric church, a resurrection-centric faith. And so while I celebrate uh, the fact that we have become such a cross-centered church, um, there's, there's parts of me, and I speak first and foremost to myself, that laments that the theology of the resurrection has been lost. Not just the theology of it, but the way it applies to our life. Um, I asked my children... One time before I preached this sermon the first time, I, I said, why is the cross important? And my little ones could answer that uh, very easily. And then I said, well, why is the resurrection important? And they said, um... And as I saw their blank stares, I saw the girls, I saw in myself a deficiency in my discipleship um, as, a, as a pastor and as a father. And so I want to tackle that. I want to tackle that this morning. The truth of the matter is that the cross and resurrection go together. As different sides of the same coin, both equally necessary for our salvation. If you take either of them away, the gospel fails, and so does your salvation. I think we can articulate why the gospel fails without a cross. I think we can articulate why salvation fails without a cross. But do we know why the gospel fails without the resurrection? My hope and prayer is that after this morning, you will. And for that, I want to turn to Paul's theology of the resurrection. We read three passages that speak to the resurrection, all from Paul. In each of those, what I'm going to do is I have three main points. I turn to each of them for uh, each of those points. Um, when you look at the New Testament, you see the resurrection of Jesus spoken of in two ways. You have the historical narratives, which would be the four Gospels along with the book of Acts. Uh, where we see the disciples and early followers of Jesus kind of bewildered, confused, even surprised by the reality of the resurrection uh, because they didn't see coming. And they were, um, as N.T. Wright says, surprised by hope. If you're familiar with N.T. Wright's work on the resurrection, you will know that that early bewilderment is one of the great apologetics for the historicity of the resurrection. They couldn't have made it up because they didn't see it coming. 
They were confused. They were bewildered. They were even scared. But then when you turn to the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, by this time you find a more developed theology of the resurrection with nuanced applications, particularly in Paul's letters um, to the early churches. And that's how I want to approach this morning. The resurrection on a deeper level through the lens of Paul's more complex theology of the resurrection. So here's what we're going to do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the three major phases of our salvation and do my best to show you how the resurrection is necessary and applicable to each of those. Necessary and applicable. What are the three major phases, movements of our salvation? Justification, sanctification, glorification. Now, let me make sure you understand what we mean with those terms. You may have heard those before. You may have never heard those terms before in your life. But when we speak of salvation, we speak of it in these three. There's more. It goes all the way back to eternity, past, and predestination. But justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is what happened in the past. Sanctification is what is happening right now. Glorification is what will happen in the future. So salvation, the Christians, Christians believe that salvation is a journey. We have been saved. Justification. We are being saved. Sanctification. We will be saved. Glorification. Put it another way. Justification is God declaring you something righteous in Christ. Sanctification is you becoming what God has declared you to be, becoming like Christ. Glorification is when you will fully be whom God has declared you to be, righteous in Christ. And what I want us to see this morning is how the resurrection is crucial, necessary, essential, indispensable to all three of those. So, three passages from Paul's letters where he talks about the resurrection and, and, and its importance, justification, sanctification, glorification. All right, let's go to work with that. We'll start Romans 6, okay? Justification. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's the crucial one in verse 7. For one has di- who has died has been set free from sin. Now that's very strange language, but it's language that we are accustomed to. By faith, we are united to Christ so that his death was our death. He dies and is condemned on the cross, not for his sin, he was without sin, but for my sin, for your sin. He dies as a substitute on behalf of his people. He died on the cross for my greed, for my lust, for my pride, for my selfishness, for my sins. And in this way, my sin is no more. It is dead because it died with Jesus. That's why Paul says that we are actually crucified with him in order that sin might be brought to nothing. That's what we mean when we say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. So that's justification, right? Jesus died for me, that's justification. No, not quite. There's more to it. It does us no good to be united by faith to a dead substitute. Perhaps he was crucified on our behalf. Perhaps his cross removes from us the penalty of sin. But our representative is in the grave. Which means we are united to a rotten corpse. Well, 
Continue on with verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never again, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. He's risen. He's never going to die again. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lived, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's the point. We weren't just united to the death of Christ. We are united to the resurrection of Christ. And that is the real reason that a Christian can officially say, sin has no more power over me. Sin has no more hold on me. The wages of sin is death. We died with Christ, but then Christ came back, which means we came back, which means we have a new life that is free from the wages of sin. Let me illustrate it like this. The ultimate form of punishment that can be stirred by the state, well, um, I'm going to be a barbaric American here, okay? Uh, you all are far more refined than us, okay? You would never do this, but we're crazy and we do these things in the United States. In the States, the, the, the greatest form of punishment is what? It is death. It is capital punishment. To go to prison for a certain amount of time is certainly a punishment, but at least there's life to be lived after the punishment. But to be put to death is final because there is no life to be lived after the punishment, or in your culture, a life sentence is the ultimate form because there's no life after death. But you don't be, you don't make things really interesting and would put quite, it would be quite a conundrum for our legal system in the states. If the state put someone to death and then they came back to life, what would the courts do to that? Do we kill them again? What do we do with this? We can't put them back to death. The sentence was death. We put the person to death. Justice was served, so to speak. So I guess you're free to go. Or in your systems, you sentence someone to life in prison and they live their life in prison and they pass away and they come back to life. Do you put them back to jail? What do you do with this second life? They've paid the penalty. The only way to escape the sentence of death is to be put to death and then come back to an entirely new life. But we're dealing with the preposterous, aren't we? It's not, it's no use even asking these questions because we all know that can't happen except that it did happen. Jesus did the preposterous. And Paul is saying, if we are united to him in his death, we are also united to him in his resurrection. He rises from our death sentence for us, which was the only way that we are now free to live a new life. We have literally risen from the cosmic death sentence of God. It is as though we are criminals who have been put to death but have risen from our execution and are now free to live an entirely new life, a life that the sentence of death can no longer touch. You're free. So, listen to me, all you despairing souls who have a hard time believing 
in the efficacy of your justification. Who have a hard time believing that you are truly forgiven. That you are truly saved. That the gospel is truly sufficient. Don't just look at your Savior's cross. Look as well upon his resurrection. Here is your answer to the sins that haunt you and disturb you. To the accuser who torments you. This is your more fuller, robust answer. It includes the cross and resurrection. It is this to your accuser. You're right, I deserve to be condemned. The wages of sin is death, but in Jesus I have been put to death for this already. Jesus died in my place and took the punishment I deserve. And Jesus is risen from the dead. Which means condemnation no longer applies to me. Been there, done that. I've done the death thing. And I'm risen to new life. So if you don't mind, accuser, I will be on my way to enjoy the newness of life that is mine. That you cannot touch. Secured for me when Jesus rose from the dead. So in this way, the resurrection of Jesus completes the believer's justification. Let's move on to talk about that newness of life we now live. We've seen the resurrection's necessity and justification. Let's look at it now in sanctification. Now we turn to Colossians. Colossians 3, 1. Is this for me? Good. Not poison, not dirty, nothing? Okay. Colossians 3. Now we're talking sanctification. Ready? If then you have been raised with Christ... So in Romans 6, he's saying you've been raised with Christ. Now he's saying, okay, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the feet of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you see his logic? We are by faith united to Jesus, but Jesus isn't dead He's risen. Okay, well, if he's risen, where is he? He is exalted on high at the right hand of God. And since you are still united to Jesus, that's where you are. And so Paul says, the logical overflow of this truth is to seek where you already are. That's the way the Christian journey is. Union to the resurrection of Jesus means we must seek the things of God because you are hidden with Christ who is exalted on high. Faith in Jesus is a commitment to become what we already are. To be where we already are. We call it sanctification. The journey of being made righteous. But I thought justification says we already are righteous. Well, we are. Sanctification is a journey of becoming who you already are. That's why Paul here is telling us to seek to inhabit the place where you already dwell. Or, to put it in simpler terms, become what you already are. The disruptive conviction that haunting conviction that every Christian experiences is the tension of having our identity in Christ and yet living lives that are contrary to that identity. 
That's the struggle of Christianity. If anybody ever, and if you're visiting or investigating Christianity, if it's been presented it this way or this was your expectation as a Christian, if you think that the Christian life is an easy journey, if it's been presented to you probably from, sorry, from some crazy people in the States, that if you become a Christian, life gets easier and more health and more wealth and more prosperity, you need to know the opposite is true. To follow Jesus is to make your life exceedingly more difficult. And here's why. Because your identity is in Christ, but your life, there's this disconnect between your life and your identity. The presence of the Holy Spirit is a witness to your truest self in Christ. He is your truest identity, and he will not leave you alone until you become who you already are. And so ironically, the unrest that causes many Christians to doubt their identity in Christ is the truest indication of your identity in Christ. You are deeply unsettled because you're not you yet, at least fully so. Who are you? You are in Jesus, who is risen and exalted. Therefore, Paul urges you to seek where you are. Now, this is a view of sanctification rooted in the resurrection. It is not wrong to ground sanctification in a cross. And that is very popular these days, as it should be. Tim Keller has made this very popular. It's this grace-centered, cross-centered sanctification where... God's kindness leads us to repentance. So this is the way it works. I behold his love in the cross and it brings affections and love within me that makes me want to, um, wants me, makes me want to obey the God who has loved me so well. I love because he loved me first. This is a Christ-centric, cross-centric motivation toward obedience, towards sanctification. And it's all true. Only we are desperate to add to it sanctification grounded in resurrection. And what you will discover is both a challenge and an encouragement. What's the challenge about sanctification and resurrection? Here's the challenge. It's not easy to live as an inhabitant of heaven while inhabiting this world. That's really hard. Paul says, you're hidden with Christ Christ is risen, exalted on high. So that's where you actually are. That's your truest identity. So seek your truest identity. But you're here and that's hard. That's very challenging. And that's why Paul in this passage has to urge us to do it. Seek where you truly are. Become your truest identity. I'll illustrate it with the the tension of my experience over here. Here's, this is the third time I've been in the United Kingdom this year. Um, first time in, in, in England, but been in Scotland twice. And here's what I've noticed about this, about traveling to Europe. It's actually, I actually find it more difficult in some ways. And here's why. I've traveled, um, I, I've traveled internationally to parts of the world that I cannot relate to in any capacity. West Africa, uh, where they don't speak my language. They, they, the, the food is completely different. The culture is completely different. Everything about it, it's night and day from America. Or even Central America, where I, um, in, in, uh, more underdeveloped parts of Mexico that I've been. Again, totally different. Can't drink the water. Can't speak the language. Completely different. Here's what's weird about your culture. Well, 
my culture is the weird one. Your, your culture is the normal one. But here's the problem. It's just similar enough to feel like I should know what's going on, but it's dissimilar enough to drive me crazy. Do you know what I'm saying? So the language is the same, but different. We speak the same language, but we're not really speaking the same language. Driving is the same. You all have nice, developed cars, um, like where I've been in other parts of the world. You have roads, unlike where I've been in other parts of the car. The driving is very different, though. Not to mention the wrong side of the road. Or your right side of the road, I'm wrong. You're right. You came first, so you're the right, we're the wrong. Or you're the left, whatever. Anyway, so, uh, and by the way, the roundabout. See, th- th- just that little thing. Like, I'm used to stop signs. And they whip me around these roundabouts. Just a little difference that makes me car sick every time I get in a car. Just the... Similar homes, developed nation, great architecture, similar homes, just smaller and hotter. No air conditioning. And you call it, you know, um, in every way you're more proper than us. Except that you call it the toilet. In America, the toilet is, that's a bad word. We call it restroom. So polite. That seems more British, right? I don't know. This is like the one area where, where Great Britain and, and America are flipped. So I, it's a toilet, but even the toilet, I went in Starbucks, there's a string hanging. I figure I just pull the string. That's what you're supposed to do. Sets off an alarm. I've been in other bathrooms where you pull the string and turn on the light. So I, anyway, I, but the point I'm trying to make here is it's similar, but different. This is a good way to think of the, what it's like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God while inhabiting a fallen world. The kingdom is not a place completely different. It's subversively different. The world as we know it, yet turned upside down. That's the citizen of the kingdom. And sanctific- you know what sanctification is? Learning to navigate that tension. But here's why it's so hard. Suppose I were to change your citizenship to American right now. You are right now an American citizen. Um, however, you're still in your home, you're still in your culture, but you have a different citizenship. Your identity, your citizenship is over there. Maybe over there, I don't don't know where the direction is, but it's over there on the other side of the pond. That's your new citizenship. That's your new identity, but you got to stay here. And you got to start learning to live as an American here in your natural culture where you're used to. You don't actually move to America but you're a citizen of America. And then I tell you that since you're a citizen of America, you need to start living that way. You need to learn to talk like we talk, do what we do, love what we love, guns and freedom. Donald Trump? Just kidding. I'm just playing the, playing, playing the stereotypes here. Don't love Donald Trump. Or guns. Live like we live, do what we do. You need to learn how to live as an American all the while living in the culture that is most natural to you. Welcome to Christian sanctification. It's hard enough to move to another culture and learn how to live in that culture, but to stay in your culture and try to live out another, to unlearn your natural culture while learning the ways of a new culture, that's not easy, but that's precisely what Paul is saying that you have to do here. That's what the resurrection demands of you. Union to the resurrected Jesus has changed your citizenship to heaven. We are actually with him. We are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. 
Therefore, that's where we are. Therefore, our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, you have to start living that way here. Here in this world, the culture of your old citizenship, that's not easy. Do you know what other other religions demand of you? They ask you to be the best in this world. Jesus asks you to learn and live an entirely new world, an upside-down world. So that's the challenging news of sanctification rooted in resurrection, united to resurrection. But here's why it's also encouraging. Sanctification rooted in resurrection is also sure and unshakable. It may be hard, but it is sure. It is the most difficult journey possible, but it is also at the same time the most assured journey possible because it's not based upon your ability to get there. You already are there. You're there. You are citizens. You are seated at the right. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, then you are hidden with Christ in God. Your truest identity is right now deeply embedded within the security of Christ. Believe me, there's nothing that can snatch you away from that. As we're about to sing in Christ alone. There is nothing that can steal you away from Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. So it's a hard journey to learn how to be a citizen of heaven while inhabiting this earth. But it is an assured journey. This is sanctification rooted in the resurrection. Now, if it is secure, if it is certain, if though we stumble about bewildered, often failing, trying to live as citizens of heaven here in this world, but we do so with an air of confidence because it is assured, then let's look at that destiny. Let's look at what is assured to happen. Resurrection and glorification, which is how it is often spoken of mostly. We've seen the necessity of resurrection, our justification, sanctification. Let's look now. Glorification. For this, we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, the most famous passage on the resurrection, where he offers the amazing promise that Jesus was raised... Not as a solitary event in history, but as the first fruit of what is to come. Not as the only resurrection, but as the first resurrection of the harvest that is to come. The first birth of a new humanity. Those who are united to Jesus have had their identity raised with Jesus but soon shall have their bodies raised as well. Let's look at that day of glorification. First Corinthians fifteen fifty. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The point that Paul is making is that we cannot inherit glory in our current state. Because in our current state, we are not fit for glory. These corruptible bodies cannot dwell within a corruptible incorruptible destiny. These perishable bodies cannot receive our imperishable identity that is hidden with Christ and God. So there's this disconnect, right? Between our current state and our eternal state, who we are here and who we are in Christ. And it would seem that those two cannot be merged. Your identity that's hidden in Christ and your body that is here, this corruptible, aging, dying body. Because one is not fit for the other. But the doctrine of glorification is that the two will become one. That we will actually experience our glorious identity in Christ as we right now experience our identity in these fallen bodies. How will this happen? Verse 51. Behold, 
I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. This is his point. The mortal body must be buried that the immortal might rise. This corruptible existence must go to the grave that the incorruptible might rise. In other words, the resurrection has transformed the grave into merely an instrument that yields our destiny. I have to go to the grave that my new body may rise. So we Christians say, let the winter come. It is the only pathway to spring. We don't fear death. Death does us a favor by swallowing up what is corruptible that the incorruptible might rise. It is a necessary pathway to our glorious destiny. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We can only talk that way if there is resurrection from the dead. And Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians that we know there is because we know Jesus has been raised. Here's the point. Listen to this and then we're done. Because this is, this is truly your future hope. Here's what I think we all need to be honest with. And if you're a skeptic, I don't have to tell you to be honest with it. You're already there. But I think even Christians, certainly living in a secular age, are nagged by this. It is easy to become skeptical about this whole notion of hope because we don't ever see it manifested. Life always ends in death. This cruel world continues to take its victims one by one without exception. One after another in this undaunted march to the grave. And so sure, we get together for church and pretend that there is a happy ending to it all. But in the real world, what we see is happy endings never come to pass. You can say all you want that the dead will rise to some glorious destiny, but every single time, dead people stay dead. Is that voice to your doubts and cynicism? Well, Paul would agree with one notable exception. Paul would say, you're right, every single time except once. And you are united to that one story. One time, happily ever after did happen. One time, a flower did bloom out of this barren creation of ours. And that flower, Paul says, is not an isolated flower. It is the first flower of an entire harvest. And that harvest is you. The story that we are united to is the one story that ended in glory. That's our story. So we don't look 
to the millions upon millions upon millions of graves that fill this world to tell us our destiny, we look at the one unoccupied grave to tell us our destiny. And that is why Paul can actually mock what you fear the most. He is talking trash to death. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He is literally boasting in the face of humanity's greatest fear. Can you? Can you sneer at the very thing we were born to fear? If Christ is risen, and if by faith you are united to Christ, if you belong to Jesus Christ this morning, if Christ is risen, and if by faith you belong to Jesus Christ, then yes, you may approach your coming death with this strange, peculiar confidence, knowing that it is merely the pathway to your glorious destiny. Justification. Sanctification, glorification. Without the cross, they all fail. They are untrue. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Without the resurrection, they all fail. But church, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If he's not, we are of most pity, let's go home. But if he is, it's all true. And he is. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, alive and well. Thus justification, sanctification, glorification, your salvation is alive and well. Let me pray and thank him. Our risen Lord Jesus Christ, on this seemingly random Sunday in the middle of holiday season, we pause to proclaim You are risen from the dead. Therefore, everything we hope in is true. Our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, our very salvation is true because you are true and you are risen. I pray, Lord, that again on this middle of summer Lord's Day Sabbath, we would leave here with an Easter-like joy and hope. an audacity, a boldness, a courage that belongs to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. For our Lord is risen from the dead. As we sing now of your resurrection, we pray that it would be an overflow of heartfelt love, praise to you, our risen Savior. Thank you, Jesus, not just for your death, but for your resurrection. And we leave here, Lord, as a resurrected people. Through Christ our King we pray. Amen.